pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that that we need to hear from you. We need to be fed by you. We recognize that you are the true bread uh, that we need to be satisfied, not just in material ways, but spiritually and eternally. And so I ask that today you would give us this true bread. Uh, Lord, please would uh, you open our hearts to receive it. Uh, Father, I pray that you would speak through your word. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, my name's Lawson, uh, if I haven't met you before, and I'd love to meet you sometime. I had an interesting encounter with ants twice this week in the book of Proverbs. It says, look to the ants. So next time you see some ants, look carefully. The second time... I was sitting at my desk. In fact, I wasn't sitting at a desk. There was a coffee table in front of me, just here in the church building. And I was sitting down doing some work on my sermon. And all these ants just appeared from nowhere. There was about a dozen ants. There was no food or crumbs on the table, but they were looking intently for this food. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Just appear from... I couldn't see where they came from. They just appear from nowhere. And I looked up half an hour later, and they were all gone. They obviously hadn't found what they were looking for. The first time I saw ants, though, they had found food in my bin. I don't know if you ever have ants in your bin. And there was a swarm of ants. Swarm is probably the wrong word to describe ants. Maybe an army of ants is more appropriate. There were so many ants forming this trail going into my bin. And apparently there's good food in the bin. We chuck our scraps in the bin, but the ants seem to like it. And so they're in there and they're you know, getting stuck into all the rubbish. And I thought, where are these ants coming from? Because, of course, you, know, you want to stop the ants. I decided not to stop the ants, but I wanted to see where they were coming from. So I followed their trail. And the ants sort of come out of the bin, down the side of the bin, onto the path, sort of around the front of the house. And so I kept following them as the ants sort of go marching two by two to my bin, <laughs> down the driveway. And then I noticed that there were more and more ants and they were going up and down the curb of the whole street. So I walked up the curb to see where all these ants were coming from. There's like thousands upon thousands of ants and they're literally going up and down the street looking for people's bins to eat their food from and to take it back, of course, to their nest. Look to the ants, it says in Proverbs. Ants are very interesting creatures because they keep looking and looking and looking and they look everywhere and they don't stop looking until they find what they're looking for when they find it they stay there and they tell everyone else they know to come look to the ants and as we consider that metaphor for a minute we look to this passage of scripture which is very familiar because only a few weeks ago we looked at in only chapter, uh, the last chapter, that Jesus fed 5,000 people who were spiritually and physically hungry, and now we see that he feeds 4,000. And so as we look at this topic of spiritual hunger, I want you to think of yourself like an ant. What do ants do when they find food? They stay there. 
They get come close to it. They tell others about it. And in the same way, and we'll see today, that when people are spiritually hungry, not just physically hungry, but spiritually hungry, they tell others. And they stay there. And they aren't willing to leave. So I've got three uh, things that I want to tell you about spiritual hunger and, more importantly, how to satisfy it. The first step for how to satisfy spiritual hunger is to know the compassion of Jesus. Know the compassion of Jesus. We see that quite prominently in the text that Jesus has compassion for those that he's teaching and he's healing. And so he won't let them go hungry. Secondly, we need to know the will of Jesus. So step one, know the compassion. Step two, know the will of Jesus. And step three, to satisfy spiritual hunger, we need to experience the power of Jesus. Now, I want to get this really clear right from the outset that in order to have the first two and for them to really make sense, you've got to have the third point. Okay? So... In order to have the first two, and for that to really make sense, to know the compassion of Jesus and know the will of Jesus, you need to experience the power of Jesus. Otherwise, it just won't come together for you. It'll all be good on the outside, but it won't be right on the inside. So we'll get there. All right, let's start. Point one. Step one. Know the compassion of Jesus. I want you to notice in the text that Jesus starts out by saying he has compassion on the crowd because they've got nothing to eat. They've been with him for three days. They're hungry. Notice that just in the previous passage that Jesus had been healing these people and he'd healed all of them. So it begs the question, of course, why are they still there? Why are they still with Jesus if he's already healed them? They're not willing to leave because he's giving them something more. Like the ants, they're not willing to go because they've found what they're looking for. But the reason Jesus has compassion on these crowds is because, well, they don't have eat food themselves. They've got nothing to eat. They didn't bring enough food for themselves. They're in a desolate region. I was trying to work out exactly where they were. The Bible sort of, and particularly Matthew's gospel, is quite geographical as we go through. They're somewhere on the mountains overlooking the Sea of Galilee in a region of Decapolis. Deca meaning ten, polis for the word metropolis, cities, the region of 10 cities. So overlooking the Sea of Galilee, but it's, it's remote. The towns and villages aren't close enough that people can walk there easily and get food. So the people, perhaps a bit silly or a bit thoughtless or ignorant, perhaps, just came and didn't bring enough food for themselves. But maybe that wasn't on their mind because Jesus had been healing them and they just weren't willing to leave because there was something more going on than just physical healing. In fact, I want to put to you a really interesting question. Why didn't they leave when they first became hungry? It says that this was the third day. They've been there for three days. Maybe they had a little bit of food, but now they're hungry. They're so hungry that they could faint on the way going home to get food. Why didn't they leave earlier? Why didn't they leave? I mean, if I was hungry, gee, I, you know, like really hungry, I'd go and get some food, wouldn't you? But they didn't. 
Now, these people, some of them had been made whole, that is physically healed and made whole for the first time in their lives. I mean, these people had been absolutely changed. We read in the previous section, people with all sorts of physical disabilities had been miraculously healed by Jesus. Not one of them missed out. But now we see they won't even leave for the basic necessities of life, food. They're in this desolate place. So what were they there for? You see, there's another hunger underneath the need to be healed. You know that when we have a disability or physical infirmity of something, of some sort, or a sickness or a chronic illness, which many of us do, and as we get older, they tend to multiply. There's something deeper than that because they were still there. There's something deeper than even our basic daily necessities like food that kept people with Jesus was a spiritual hunger. And only Jesus was satisfying it. So let me ask you the question, are you awake to this spiritual hunger? Because even if you got what you really wanted from God, even if you got that thing that you said, I just need to have this, and I'll be happy. I just need to have this, and I'll be satisfied. Whatever it is that you imagine that you really need. This passage teaches us that even if you got that, you would still be hungry, spiritually. There would still be something that you need from Jesus. And so look to the ants. Like they did, they weren't willing to leave. And so these are the people that Jesus has compassion for. And this is a common problem. Our friend Mick Jagger from the Rolling Stones put it well, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, oddly enough, that was a very countercultural message at the time. People were upset in 1965 when that song was released because he was speaking out against materialism. He was speaking out against other things as well, but he was saying that he, who has everything, you know, probably one of the most famous musicians at the time in the world, everyone knew what he looked like and how he danced on stage and carried on, and even he couldn't get satisfaction. There's another artist, Johnny Cash, who writes a song about a satisfied man. He said, the world hasn't found someone who's a truly satisfied man. Because people are always looking to be satisfied from one place to the next, and they never find it. Then we've got a phone I can borrow just for a minute. I'm not going to text anyone. Thank you. Another example. This thing. We love our phones, especially when we get a new one. Who loves a new phone? Come on, put your hand up, be honest. All right, it's like 10% of you. The other 90% are just lying to me. <laughs> Everyone loves a new phone. But of course, after a couple of years, a new phone comes out and your new contract expires around that time as well. You know, interesting, those two things seem to coincide. And you see this new and better phone and instead of two cameras, it's got three. 
And instead of 20 megapixels, it's got 40 megapixels. Of course, you need more megapixels every two years, <laughs> if you hadn't noticed. And it's 10 times faster than the last model. And every two years, you're unsatisfied with your existing one. And so you decide, well, I need a new model. And so you upgrade. Thank you for the phone. This illustrates for us a common human problem that we are unsatisfied. Jesus knows about it. He knows what's underneath our surface symptoms. And he is willing to address it. He has compassion on the crowds. In fact, the Bible tells us that God has so put eternity into the hearts of man that he knows and he set it in our hearts right at the beginning when we were formed and made by him that only he could satisfy what St. Augustine called a God-shaped hole in our hearts. So what do we need to know about Jesus' compassion from this text? Well, a couple of things. Firstly, that it's an unequal offer. That is, we need him. He doesn't need us. We need him to satisfy us. He doesn't need us to satisfy himself. We need to recognise that, that we're the receiver we also need to recognise that this unequal offer, that he has the power to feed us and we don't have the power to feed ourselves, just like the people. That Jesus has something special on offer that goes beyond the things that we think we need, that's deeper than all of them. And only he can give it. Only Jesus can give it. So it's an unequal offer. We need to know that about his compassion. Secondly, we need to know that it's marked by grace. That is, it's undeserved. They had no bread, and yet Jesus can feed them. We have no ability on our own to change our soul, to meet our deep spiritual hunger, but Jesus can. And this grace is out of love. Isn't it amazing that what we see demonstrated here physically is a spiritual truth that reminds us that his compassion desires that none should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. That Jesus wants everyone to know and about his love for them, that Jesus wants everyone to be satisfied, as we find that all were, beyond physical satisfaction, something deeper, something that keeps people at Jesus' feet. And this word compassion in the original language is very interesting. It speaks to someone being moved in their inner parts. Their gut was moved. The idea of this, of course, in the ancient world is that they thought the centre of emotion and decision-making or the will was, is not seated in their mind, but in the gut. And in the ancient world, this meant that Jesus was moved for the people's hunger. He's moved for your hunger. The English rendering of compassion is a bit different in terms of its meaning. It kind of means that we empathise with someone else. And Jesus meets that meaning too, very interestingly, because Jesus would look forward at this moment to a time when he would experience utter spiritual hunger himself. 
when he was on a cross, stripped physically, but stripped spiritually, utterly hungry that he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus at that point was taking on the spiritual hunger of a world who doesn't know Jesus so that he might be the one to satisfy them in his resurrection power. And we'll get a bit more to that later. So step one, we need to know the compassion of Jesus. Step two, we need to know the will of Jesus to satisfy our spiritual hunger. Notice in verse 32 that Jesus is unwilling to send them away hungry. He's unwilling to send them away hungry. That is, if you want your spiritual hunger satisfied, if you've actually come to the conclusion, like these people had, that something better is there than food, that something better is there than the physical healing that they've already received, they don't, they're not just going home, they're there. They're there despite being faint with hunger. They've realised that Jesus has something to give them and the Bible tells us that he is willing to give. And he doesn't want to let you go without receiving it. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that perhaps about today's service? That he's not willing to let you go hungry? That he wants to feed you spiritually what you really need? Have you thought about it? If you come with that expectation, not to get some more food for thought, but some food for the soul. Because if you're hungry, know that he will feed you. Recognize it. I think this is illustrated very well with the story of the prodigal father. The prodigal father. Not the prodigal son, the prodigal father. Actually, it's interesting because the headings always say the prodigal son. But there's two sons. And both of them end up being outside the house at one point or another. The first son uh, is the younger one. And his fa- he asks for his inheritance early before his father had died, which in the ancient culture is like, I wish you were dead so I could get your money. The father says, yes, okay, I'm sure with tears, and gives him what he asked for. He goes to a far away, another country, spends it all, wild living, spending everything that he has, and eventually he comes to the end of himself. He's in there feeding the pigs. He can't even afford to eat, you know, the same banquet that these pigs are eating. And he comes to the end of himself and realises and decides in his heart he needs to go back. When he'd spent everything, he realised that the true food was in the father's house, not out there amongst the pigs. So eventually he comes home and the father's waiting for him. In fact, in the text, it has this amazing uh, idea in the picture of looking toward the horizon. The father is looking toward the horizon that his son would return. And when he does, he tries to repent to him, but the father knows. He knows what's in his heart. And he clothes him and restores him fully. And so they throw this party for this younger son. But then there's the older son. 
And he's out working in the fields and he's angry. He's angry. Because the younger son, you know, spent all his inheritance, didn't do anything good with it. He'd left the father's home. He'd disowned his father. He'd disrespected the whole family. The father had even dishonored himself by welcoming the younger son back. So he's angry. He is angry. And yet, what does the father do? He doesn't say, well, you know, too bad for you. He pleads with him to come in to the house. The father invites both sons to come in because both of them are outside the house. Now, this tells us something really important about the will of Jesus, not to send people away hungry. Firstly, there was a feast in the house. That's where the food was. And so if you want to be fed, you've got to come in. But there's two types of people that are outside. There's the kind of obvious one, which is the youngest son, the one we tend to focus on the most. Wild living, you know, sexual immorality, drinking and partying and whatever else. You kind of you can picture that person. But then there's another type of person. Someone who's kind of always been around the house, a religious person, a very obedient person, a very prideful person very angry person and when he sees when this angry son sees the other one come in it stirs up something inside of him that was always there and really he needs to know about the compassion of the father as well but he's outside the house and so the will of Jesus illustrated powerfully through this parable is that both the older, angry son and the younger son are invited to come in to be fed at the big feast that is held for them. Well, you notice something else in our text in Matthew 15, that Jesus knows the danger for those that aren't fed by him. Now, of course, he's talking in a physical sense. He's saying, I can't let them, I'm not unwilling to let them go away hungry lest they faint on the way. They were so far away from whatever towns that the people had come from that they literally would have fainted on the way. Jesus knows people better than they know themselves. So they're very hungry people lest they faint on the way. But this has a spiritual meaning too because Jesus knows that if you aren't satisfied spiritually by him, if you don't get what you need from him, then there will be consequences and you will choose them for yourself. If you choose not to stay with him, to get the true food from him, to believe in him, then you will faint on the way. That at the end of the day, the consequences will be quite serious. I think this is actually a, quite a profound picture of the eternal place of suffering, of hell. Never satisfied, always hungry. Imagine that. Imagine all, like we all know what it's like to be hungry. You know, the children get, seem to get a little bit antsy when they're hungry. You know, and you've got to feed them to satisfy them and then the behaviour gets better. You know, it's interesting how that works. But imagine always being hungry, 
That's kind of the picture that the text gives us of life without Jesus. As if you're with him, you're still, you're satisfied. If you're away from him, you'll always be hungry. You'll always be looking and you'll never find it apart from Jesus. I want you to notice something else, that the conditions are poor outside the region where Jesus is. That is, there's not enough bread. And I want you to notice that the conditions are worse than the last time that Jesus fed 5,000 people because they're in a more desolate place. There's no villages that they can go to. And then when Jesus fed the 5,000, it was just one night. This is three days. So the people are far hungrier and it's far more remote. There's not enough bread. I wonder if the disciples were looking around going, what are we going to do this time? You know, is Jesus going to ask us to feed them? This is even harder than the last time. They probably looked at one another and go, well, who's, who's going to sort this out? Who, which of us is he, is he going to ask to fix it? We couldn't afford it even if we, even if we tried. It's a desolate place. And it's a great crowd. There's too many people. You know, the odds are stacked against them. It's as if Jesus has lifted the stakes of the game even more than last time. Let me ask you, because there's a problem going on with the disciples here, and the problem was that they'd seen Jesus do miracles before. They'd seen him do incredible things. I mean, he'd fed 5,000 people, and he'd made much out of little. But they didn't have faith the next time. Why is that? It seems... This is kind of our application point that I want to put to you, that the faith of the disciples is captured by pragmatic unbelief. The faith of the disciples is captured by pragmatic unbelief. What do I mean by that? I mean that when the going gets tough, we look at the problem, not the solution. When things are difficult in our lives, we go, oh, this so, it's so hard. Jesus, it's harder than last time. Why do you do this to me? Why are things worse than they were before? Why am I in such a desolate place at the moment spiritually? Why are things harder than they were before? We look at the problem with our pragmatic unbelief. Though we know Jesus. And the disciples had this same problem. Because they were seeing their needs without the presence of Jesus. Jesus is with them. He's the solution. He's raised the stakes, but he's the same. And so let me tell you then, that whatever you face, whatever situation that you're in, we need to move on from pragmatic unbelief. We need to move on from just looking at the problem and knowing that Jesus and his presence within us is enough. And if you don't yet know Jesus, then come to him when you're hungry and be fed. Trust in him. Find your hope in him. And he alone will satisfy you because he alone has the power to. So yes, these sorts of things happen to us all the time. We see him provide for us once and we don't trust him the second time. We're just like these disciples. One more thing I want to apply for you 
to learn about the will of Jesus, is that this time, he doesn't ask the disciples to do it themselves, as he did in the previous time when he fed the 5,000. He doesn't ask them to feed them himself, themselves. Why is that? You know, there's all these people who've been healed around him. There's crowds of like probably 10,000 people. It's a lot of people. He is showing them that only he will feed the people. That he will pay the cost. There's not enough bread. But he has enough to pay. Only he has enough to pay. This points us, of course, to the cross where only Jesus was pure and perfect enough to, and God himself to take the cost for sin. He will pay. His blood would be spilled for sinners. He will pay. This points us that Jesus will meet us in our place of desolation without him, in our place of spiritual hunger, because he went to a place of spiritual desolation himself on a cross being exposed to the world and forsaken by the Father for you personally. And he alone can feed so many. For his will is to seek and to save the lost. He loves the whole world and everyone and he alone has the power to feed so great a crowd. So that is step two. We must know the will of Jesus. Finally, step three we need to experience the power of Jesus. Now, I said this before. To know the compassion and know the will of Jesus is important, but it's got to actually change us. It's got to make a difference in our lives. We can have all the intellectual knowledge and we can just go home and continue on as if everything's just the same. No, we need to experience it. It's been said before that just like the prophet Elijah had to build the altar, you know, he had to put the stones together, he had to cut up the wood, he had to put the animal on to be sacrificed, even pour water on it just to make sure that it was God who got the glory. So Elijah built the altar, but God had to bring the fire. The compassion and will of Jesus only really changes you if you experience it for yourself. Notice that only once the altar is built, then he brings the fire in that metaphor. Let me give you an example. There's a man called John Wesley. Uh, some of you might have heard of him, quite a famous evangelist who sort of kicked around in uh, England and uh, the early days of uh, the United States. He was probably one of the most competent men at Oxford University at the time. He was a, a scholar he was ordained as a minister. He believed the right things about God. Now, he would have known about the compassion of Jesus. He would have known about the will that God wanted to save people all across the world. That's why he decided that he would leave Oxford and go to one of the new states in the United States called Georgia to preach. And you know what? He was absolutely useless. Terrible. Terrible. He was so devastated by his poor effort 
and poor results. There was no fruit. He was going over there to feed hungry souls and he realized that he needed the gospel probably more than the people he was trying to preach to. He had this awakening that he needed it as much as those that he was talking to. He realized his hunger, that he needed to experience it for himself. He needed his soul warmed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you another example. It's a guy called Nicodemus in John chapter 3, a very religious man, extremely religious. The Pharisees, you know, they'd fast twice a week. You know, they'd give 10% of everything. They'd even go through the spice rack and give 10% of the spice rack to the temple as if they needed the spices. They were very particular that they would go beyond the letter of the law and follow the tradition of the elders to make sure that they were so obedient that God would accept them on the basis of their obedience. And so Jesus, and this man came to Jesus at night because he was a bit embarrassed to be going to Jesus because the Pharisees didn't really like Jesus, as we've heard. And then he has this conversation with Jesus and Jesus said to him, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. Meaning that you can know everything about the compassion of Jesus. Even the demons believe. Lots of people know about the compassion of Jesus. doesn't necessarily change you. We can know a lot about the will of God. We can even be an evangelist. Gee, you can be telling people about Jesus and you think, oh, I must be a Christian because I'm telling people. I must know what it means to follow and believe in Jesus because I can tell others about him. I know his will. I know the Bible. And yet it's not enough. You must be born again. You must be changed. For those of us who have been born again and have fallen back, or are really struggling, we're fine and we've got a hungry soul, we need to be refreshed by the Spirit of God. I want you to notice something about what Jesus does with the disciples. And Jesus said to them, verse 34, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven, and a few small fish. So within the crowd of 10,000 people, they've got seven loaves and a few fish. I mean, like little fish, like Tommy Ruffs or something, you know, those, those little ones. You know, maybe a trumpeter. They're not very good for eating. 35, and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves of fish, listen to this, he took what the disciples gave him, and having given thanks, he broke them and then gave them back to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Something happened to that food, didn't it? Something happened, of course, because you'll read on. 4,000 men, plus women and children, a crowd of maybe 10,000 people, all ate and were satisfied. There was leftovers. Something happened to the food. They gave it to Jesus, and something happened to the food. I wonder what would happen if you gave things to Jesus. Not just physical things, but spiritual things. The things you hold most dear in your life. I wonder what would happen 
if you gave those things to Jesus. I wonder whether we don't experience the compassion and the will of God in our lives and we don't see the fruit of, in our lives because we're not willing to give things to Jesus. We're holding it back. We think we need them. We're hungry. You know, I need my career to feel good about myself. I need my investments. I need my relationships. I need to hold on to these things. But I wonder what would happen if you gave them to Jesus. Because something happened to that food, it was changed. And I will tell you that something will happen to you if you give yourself to Jesus. You will be changed. We must build the altar. That is, in obedience. We do everything that he tells us to do and then we expect him to come and to change us, to transform us, to make us new, to refresh us. I think this is powerfully demonstrated in the book of Acts. Because notice that the disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts have all this information. They've got the compassion of Jesus. You know, Peter has experienced it personally. He's been restored after he denied Jesus three times. They've got the will of Jesus. They've heard his command to go, therefore, into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that he's commanded them to the end of the age, behold, that Jesus will be with them. They know this. They know God's will. And yet, what does Jesus say? He says, wait. Wait. Wait for spiritual power. Wait for me to come upon you. Wait for me to change you. This Peter, who couldn't even, right at the most important time, when he was called upon, do you know Jesus? When he was around the fire, warming himself, denied it. This same coward. At Pentecost, what did he do? He told them that they had murdered Jesus and that they needed to repent and believe in him, that they needed his forgiveness. It's been said of a preacher before that when he encountered the power of God, when he came back, when he really gave himself, that he went to bed a man and woke up as a lion. And it's amazing, the story, I forget the name of the guy, but it said he, he had this amazing ministry for two years. He said whatever he did, People were just getting converted. It was an incredible time, an incredible ministry. And then one night he went to bed, a lion, and he woke up an ordinary man. God just took it away. And what does that tell us? Well, I think it tells us a couple of things. One is that God is the one who empowers. But secondly, it tells us that we need this empowering change from God as an experience. Mental knowledge is not enough. Good works are not enough. We must know and meet Jesus and be willing to give ourselves entirely to him. I'm going to finish for the sake of time on one note. And this really ties into what's already been shared today. Have a look at verse 39. So we know that they were all fed. Verse 39 says, And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Magadan. If you flip to the back of your Bible, you might have a map in there. You won't find Magadan in there. In fact, scholars don't really know where Magadan is. Some suspect that Magadan is Magdala, as in Mary Magdalene. 
just south of Capernaum on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. But most scholars admit that they actually don't know. They don't know where Magadan is. But Jesus went there. Now, I want to tell you something really important, and I hope that you get this, is that when you give yourself to Jesus, when you're satisfied by Him, when you feed on Him and receive the true bread, you might go somewhere totally out of the way that no one's heard of. What to do? To reach those people with the good news of Jesus. You might go to the Magadan of the first century Palestine. You might be sent to some place in the world where you had never thought possible because you gave yourself to Jesus and what did he do? He changed you. Just like the food was changed, that you could be changed by the Holy Spirit of God. So be warned. Because if you're really going to give yourself to him, he's going to make you into a new person. He's going to refresh and renew you. You might have already experienced this at conversion and you need it again. You need to be refreshed and renewed by the only one who can feed a hungry soul. I want to invite the band to come up. I'm going to pray to finish. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the good news. Thank you for teaching us from your word about spiritual hunger. Help us to move beyond just knowing compassion and knowing your will, but to experience your power in our lives, to be changed by it. Thank you for this good news. Lord, help us to give ourselves to you fully and without restraint. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.